0: Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 28, and we will be reading from the English Standard Version translation. Hear the word of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's pray. Father help us to have a clear understanding of of what your Holy Spirit would teach us by your word and by the authority of your word. so let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord God, our rock, even our Redeemer, in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning we continue to focus our message uh, this month, all of our messages this month, and in light of that date, 500 years ago, the 31st of October, 1517, when Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 Theses to the uh, church door at the Castle Wittenberg in Wittenberg, Germany. That was the inauguration of the Protestant Reformation. So each each week we have been taking one of the great themes of that reformational time when God was restoring the gospel, recovering a genuine biblical truth for the sake of the church. And so we've been looking at those five significant concepts, those five significant scriptural, biblical ideas which actually define the nature of the gospel and which are always necessary for our own lives as Christians uh, to grow, to live and to grow as God would want us to, but are always necessary for the the reforming, the reviving, uh, the reclaiming of everything that's biblical before God for the sake of the church. So these five solas, they're nicknamed solas because they're all about the uniqueness of the particular aspects of God's grace. So the first is sola scriptura. That is, our doctrine, our belief, our understanding of what God has done in this world to save sinners is, is grounded in the scriptures, uh, the scriptures alone. The scriptures alone are sufficient to declare to us God's will for man's salvation. We don't have to go beyond the scriptures to find out what has God declared to us in order that we might be made right with Him. The second, though, is about grace, sola gratia, grace alone, that that God is going to save us by the the energizing, powerful work of His grace and His grace alone. It's, It's His doing, not our doing. But then it's through faith alone. That is to say, faith, trusting, resting in Christ alone. Faith that saves us, not our own works, but the works of another. And that's why it's through Christ alone. Because salvation is going to rest in what Jesus Christ has done, not what we have done. And then finally, uh, all of these solas have its climax and crescendo in, in the last of them, sola sali deo, gloria, to the glory of God. Alone. When Paul says in this passage so that we can't boast, it's because we get no credit for our salvation at all. All of it goes to the glory of God. All of our salvation glorifies God. Now, in looking at this, we recognize that Scripture, the authoritative word of God, is is like the foundation. It tells us, it declares to us salvation. But then the other four solas tell us how and why. And so we've been emphasizing the fact that grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is the how of salvation, and then the why of salvation is, in fact, the glory of God. So this morning, we're now at that third of those hows. What we're talking about, what we're looking at in this passage, what we're considering is the third part of those three things that describe how. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. So we're looking at in Christ alone. Christ alone saves us. Now what's interesting is that in this particular passage we have here, all three of these things are presented: grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, at the time of the Reformation, we should recognize that that with respect to Jesus Christ in Christ alone, the reformers had no issues with the with the church that uh, the medieval church, the Roman Catholic Church out of which they were coming, in terms of the person of Christ. Uh, the The church had faithfully proclaimed, The true understanding of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus Christ became a true human being. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Uh, That great confession of Christ, all of them agreed on that. Really, the issue then was the work of Christ. What was the problem? The work of Christ. What did the work of Christ actually accomplish uh, was, now both uh, both the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church said, well, well, Christ, the death of Christ, is a satisfaction for sin. So then it became not just the work of Christ, but what does that work of Christ actually accomplish and how does it actually come to the sinful soul that wants to be saved? How is it applied? That was the deeper issue of conflict. At the time of the Reformation and then, Codified in the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church said that the grace of God applies the work of Christ to the sinner in and through the regular and faithful reception of the sacraments of the church. So, to the work of Christ, uh, the sinner must contribute his faithful reception and faithful participation in those sacraments. The Reformation response was this. The grace of God applies the work of Christ directly to the believer through faith alone. The sinner who is a believer is to trust in Christ's work alone, in the satisfaction of sin that Christ has accomplished. To be all of the satisfaction that's ever, ever needed, he's to trust not in the sacraments, not in his faithful observance of the sacraments, he's to trust in the work of Christ alone, plus nothing, plus nothing he would do, plus nothing that he would bring. So, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, today though, I want us to recognize that the, the, the danger to this idea of Christ alone is, is not something where we're looking back 500 years And it's not like we're looking today and saying, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, we we wish they understood it our way. The truth is, listen carefully, Protestants don't believe this anymore. Uh, The great problem in the church today among those who claim to be Bible-believing Christians is that church after church after church sunday after sunday after sunday is is preaching something other than something other than preaching Christ and there's a term for it it's been analyzed thoroughly it's called moralistic therapeutic deism that pastors who claim to believe the bible are again and again and again standing in the pulpits and preaching to people uh, how to be better human beings whether it's how to have your best life now or how to have the most fantastic marriage you would ever want, how to raise your kids to be uh, perfectly good, uh, all these different principles of living, the emphasis has moved from Christ to ethics. It's moved from Christ to how to become a better person. It's moved from Christ to Did you know that if you live this way, psychologically, you're going to be more healthy? So what we're going to say this morning is a message that Bible-believing Christians need to hear because we're not saved by following the moral precepts of the New Testament and the Old Testament. We are saved by the almighty, powerful work of Christ. We're saved by the good news, the gospel. It's the gospel that works the most significant transformation and changes in us. And this is what we need. So this morning, in our particular text, verses 19 through uh, 28, like I said, all three of these things are connected, the how of salvation, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. In particular, we should see how Paul takes up the entire work of Christ and he uses two Two particular terms. I have to be careful when I do this because I've often done something like this. He's given us two particular terms. (laughs) Two particular terms in order to to describe to us, to sum up the work of Christ. The terms are redemption and propitiation. It's the heart of the message that Paul gives here this morning. And so what we're going to do is, as we've been doing, we're going to ask ourselves what is redemption and propitiation mean, and then we're going to ask, how does redemption work? Uh, What is it accomplished? What is propitiation? What does propitiation accomplish? When we've answered these questions, we will have focused and zeroed in on the biblical understanding of why salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. So let's begin with the first question. What do redemption and propitiation mean? Now, we've been pointing out week after week that the, the terms of grace, the vocabulary of grace, uses words that were common to the people in, in that era. And both redemption and propitiation were, were commonly used words in the Greco-Roman world and also commonly used words in the, uh, the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture. Now, the word redemption in its most basic meaning is this, the deliverance from an evil or an evil condition... By the payment of a price. And so a redemption, the redemption price itself, is called a ransom. So to redeem someone from some kind of evil was to pay the ransom, the price of redemption. So prisoners of war could be redeemed. That is, a ransom could be paid for them, they could be released and set free. Further, it was also very common across the Roman Empire for slaves to actually go through redemption. Um, a benefactor might decide to buy a slave, ransom a slave, and then set him free. That would happen from time to time. It might be a relative. Uh, it might be someone who had already been emancipated, who would buy a, a relative out of, out of uh, slavery by the payment of a ransom. Also, it was a case that slaves in the, in the Roman Empire could, could redeem themselves because slaves could actually make money, earn money, save money, and they might do that. But in any case, when the ransom price was paid, the significant thing is that the slave is set free. No further obligations to the earlier condition. Redeemed, set free, free from the evil condition. Now, the word propitiation means the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. Um, It it also was a common word. Now, now look at it this way. Uh, If you're standing in danger... Of wrath from someone that you've offended, but then you give that person, your adversary, your opponent, a, a particular kind of gift that turns away his anger, which you know extinguishes his anger, which um, which which makes peace with him. Then what you have given is termed a propitiation. Um, guys, it's like this: you offend your wife, and of course you're wrong; she's not. And, and so then what you do is you bring her roses and chocolate as a peace offering. You know, you come home with those things and, and her face turns from a scowl to a happy smile. All is forgiven, you know, it's that kind of a thing. Well, that would be a propitiation, turning anger to peace, turning anger away, getting accepted again because you've paid this propitiation propitiation, that which turns away anger. Now in the Greco-Roman world, this term was used uh, in the pagan worship with the pagan gods, and so they had these propitiatory sacrifices that they would you know pay to the pagan gods because they were always thinking the g- pagan gods were upset with them or angry with them. What's interesting though, is that this was also so familiar in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament there were propitiatory sacrifices, really going all the way back to the very first sacrifice that Noah f- sacrificed after the ark, It was a propitiatory sacrifice. That is, you give this, and what happens is, is that the wrath of God then is extinguished. There's, in its place, an objective peace, reconciliation. So Paul uses these two ideas to sum up the work of Christ, to say that the work of Christ is both a redemption and it is a propitiation. The question then becomes is, is how does that work of Christ, redemption and propitiation, How does that work to come to us in order that we might be saved? So, we turn to the question itself of redemption. How does Jesus provide redemption? And what does the redemption of Christ actually accomplish? Look at verse 24. Paul says this, that people are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we need to apply the definition of redemption to what Paul says. When we do this, we can restate it this way. So, the work of Christ saves because it delivers the sinner from evil because the death of Christ is the ransom price that is paid. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus himself said it this way. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, speaking of Christ, it's proclaimed, for you, Jesus Christ, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So this ransom price of Christ is what brings deliverance from evil. The death of Christ is the ransom that is paid to deliver people from evil. Jesus dying for sinful human beings is the ransom to ransom them for God. The question, though, is what is the evil condition that ransom applies to? What what really is, is the ransom accomplishing? What is the evil condition that's being changed? Well, the evil condition is the moral debt that every one of us owes to God. Uh, We have disobeyed God. All of us disobeyed God in Adam. And all of us have disobeyed God in our own actual lives. We stand before God with this moral debt that the Bible And theology, and the church has confessed to be the moral debt of original sin and actual sin. It's a a debt that we stand before God. And it's it's such a debt that we cannot pay it that it puts us in a condition of being enslaved to sin. So Paul says in Romans 6.17 and then 7.14 that we are slaves to sin that we are sold under sin. Jesus himself said in John 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is why Paul speaks of us, apart from saving grace, as helpless, as without strength, Uh, even being dead in our trespasses and sins. So the moral debt is so severe, it's a condition that is so severe before God that Paul says it's it's really being cursed. Galatians 3.10, he says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. So if we're not keeping everything that God has said, if we're not morally obedient to God in a a manner of perfection, doing everything, then Scripture says we are cursed. We are under the curse. We have this moral debt that we cannot pay. We are helpless. And we're unable to help ourselves. And that's why Paul says, Romans 6.23, the wages, therefore, of sin is death. It's a hopeless condition. That's the evil condition. That's what has taken place with us. Sin has rendered us to be slaves in this life, condemned to eternal death. But Christ is the Redeemer. Jesus himself said, John 6, John eight thirty six, If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Uh, He paid the ransom price. His death on the cross is the price that needed to be paid. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, as the Apostle says. But then it's natural to ask, and we should ask this, to whom is this ransom paid? There's a ransom price. It has to be paid. Christ pays it. But to whom does he pay it? Well, the ransom is a payment as a satisfaction for the debt of sin, and our sin is the moral debt that we owe to God. So Christ pays this ransom for us on our behalf and in our place to no one else other than God. The redemption is paid specifically to the justice of God. This redemption cancels our moral debt God's justice with respect to that moral debt is satisfied. So our moral debt is wiped clean. We're forgiven. We're pardoned. We're set free because it has been paid for. It has been satisfied by Christ. That is why Paul can say in verse 26 that because of this, because of the redemption that's in Christ, God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in his Son. God's just. The debt's been paid to him. Justice smiles and asks no more, as the hymn writer said. And therefore, he can be gracious and give the gift of justification and righteousness to others. Christ makes the payment. Justification then becomes a free gift to those who trust in the Redeemer. Now, there are merciful and and blessed outcomes from what Christ did as the Redeemer. By trusting in Christ our sin, which had formerly determined our eternity, you are aware of that, aren't you? That, uh, I can remember years ago, um, one of the basketball coaches at BCHS would say to young men, and I listened to him carefully, he says, um, Show me your friends, and I will show you your future. The people you hang with, the people you run with, the people you spend your time with, uh, that's going to determine what your future is. And I thought, that that is really very, very true. But think about this. Uh, In this world, we're all hanging with sinful human beings. Sin is determining our future. If if we don't have something changing that, uh, we have one hellish future in a literal way. Uh, But by trusting in Christ, fully resting in Him, fully receiving His work as, as the Redeemer, fully recognizing that His work was all that's necessary to pay the debt, well, when we know Christ, then we know that His work determines our destiny. We're redeemed. Purchased forevermore, possessing by his grace the gift of everlasting life. So listen to how scripture describes the benefits of the redemption that comes from Christ. Christ paying for our sins. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Who is like you, O God? You pardon sin and you pass over the transgression for the remnant of your inheritance. God does not retain His anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, crimson, they shall be like wool. Now this is redemption. This is Christ's death as a ransom. It's the cornerstone of our salvation. And we can add nothing to it because it needs nothing more. And then the word propitiation, which Paul also says, uses here. What is this propitiation of Christ all about? What does it accomplish? In the first place, when Paul speaks about Jesus Christ as a propitiation, he is meaning to point to us to the fact that the death of Christ is a sacrifice. Now, sacrifice in the same sense in which sacrifices were given in the pagan culture to pagan gods but especially in the sense of the Old Testament, where from the time of of Moses and the giving of the law, there was a system of sacrifices that were given in reference to worship, because how do you worship a holy, holy, holy God when you are not holy, when you are unholy, unholy, unholy? How do you worship a holy God? The sacrificial system was put into place so that man and God and God and man could find a reconciliation where man could worship God acceptably. So how is it done? Well, the law says bring um, a a lamb or a a baby goat or a calf a year uh, old or younger and make sure that it's without spot or blemish and you bring it to the priest who is mediating at the tabernacle or the temple and you bring that animal and, and you lay your hands upon the animal's head And that was symbolism for the transference of your sin to the animal. And then in another act of symbolism, the animal was slain. That was symbolically your death to sin. Sin kills the animal. The animal dies, but that should have been your death, but the animal dies in your place. It's a substitute. So that whole system of sacrifice was to say to the Israelites, you know, if if God held you accountable right now for your sin, you would die. But God is reconciling you to himself, and therefore there's these, these sacrifices for sin. That's what was going on. God was teaching his people, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Necessary part. Now, that kind of sacrificial thing that I first described here is what you would call an expiation. Expiation is just a word. We don't use it much anymore, but it basically means to cancel guilt. An expiation is that which cancels guilt. Different than a vindication. If you're not guilty, and they charge you as guilty, that would be a vindication. But this is when you're actually guilty, and something comes along that, that takes away your guilt. It's an expiation. That's what these sacrifices were doing. Original sin, actual sin, brings moral guilt upon us. Uh, we can't stand before God in a guilty state of affairs. We'd be under his wrath and curse. But the sacrifice of atonement had that purpose to cancel moral guilt before God. The death of Christ as an expiation. The death of Christ, the shedding of his blood, dying in our place, that cancels guilt, both actual and original, for those who would trust in Christ. Now, that was foretold in the great prophecy in Isaiah 53. So it's not like the New Testament just invented something. This was really the the prophetic word concerning Jesus. Uh, There it says in verse 5 that Christ was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6 the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 it was the Lord's will for Christ to give his life as an offering for guilt. Verse 11. Christ, the righteous one, God's servant, would cause the many to be accounted righteous because he would bear their iniquities. Verse 12, Christ poured out his life to death because he bore the sin of many. But the interesting thing is, is that in this passage in Romans, Paul doesn't use the word expiation. He doesn't use the typical word for sacrifice. He uses the word propitiation. And the reason is this. The idea of propitiation is this. It includes everything that expiation does, plus more. Propitiation is expiation plus something else that is so incredibly necessary. What is the necessity? Well... The Bible, of course, describes God as the judge. Abraham said to to God, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? But the interesting thing about God as a judge is, is, is he's not detached. He's not uninvolved. He's not disconnected with respect to those who've broken his law. Rather, God is presented to us in the pages of Scripture as a God of wrath, a wrathful judge. Now, in human courts, uh, we would not want judges to be this way. Why? Well, we, we don't want judges to get emotional. We want judges to be absolutely rational. We want them to be dispassionate. We want them to always be able to see clearly because we recognize that we as human beings... Uh, when, he, when we get highly emotionally charged over something, it clouds our judgment. So human judges have to remain dispatched. We don't want human judges, for instance, to start feeling really, really sorry for serious lawbreakers. On the other hand, we don't want judges to fly off the handle for everybody who, against everybody who comes into court. No, no they have to be dis- detached. They have to be... Impersonal with respect to what they're doing on the bench and judging cases. But it's different with God. Uh, God is the judge of all of creation. Our sin is always, ultimately, uniquely against Him. It is His holy law that has been violated. Our sinful condition is against God. Personally. And God personally reacts to our sin. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God responds to man's sin in this personal way that the Bible describes as his anger and his wrath. It's a holy wrath against human beings who refuse to embrace the true knowledge of the true God. It's against all people who will worship anything and everything except God himself. The most famous sermon in American history and literature is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of of an angry God. Now, tragically, most American Christians are going to put their hands over their ears and say, "Uh, the God I love isn't like that. No. The Apostle John, in the famous third chapter of the Gospel of John, where he proclaims in verse 16, for God so loved the world, in verse 36 says this, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The truth is, we can't get past the wrath of God. We can't dismiss it. We cannot be saved unless there is something within the whole plan of salvation that's going to address both the wrath of God and the human sin which provokes it. That is why propitiation, the propitiation of Christ, is so necessary. Because the central focus of Christ's death on the cross was as a propitiatory sacrifice in his blood that would appease the wrath of God. This is the great work of Christ in propitiation. That his death fully and finally extinguishes God's wrath toward the sins of those who trust in Christ. And in the place of wrath, there comes peace. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Verses 8 and 9. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the propitiation of Christ has this, this, this twofold effect all of the atoning power of expiation, our sins counted against Christ. Christ dying in our place, our guilt for sin canceled, pardoned, forgiven. There's also the further dimension, the Son of God bearing the wrath and curse of God, God the Son suffering and dying in our place. And this is Paul's message. The work of Christ has done everything needed, everything necessary for our salvation. Christ is our redemption and Christ is our propitiation. We are ransomed by the death of Christ in our place from all of the penalties of sin. As scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As the hymn writer Philip Bliss has written, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. And in addition, Christ made the sacrifice that gives us peace with God. Jesus has satisfied the justice of God and has extinguished the wrath of God. Therefore, all of the Protestant reformers made this claim that salvation is to be found in the work of Christ alone. The reformers stood on that biblical foundation that all human beings have sinned, Every human being has fallen short of the glory of God, but God has provided salvation. Sinners are justified by the grace of God as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, which removes the wrath of God, the sacrifice of Christ to be received by faith. And this was to demonstrate both God's justice and that He is just the God who is both the just and the justifier of the one who places his full trust in Jesus. For, standing with Paul, the Reformers declared that sinners are justified by faith in Christ apart from the works of the law, apart from any good works which they might ever do. And so the Reformers would have fully agreed with our hymn writers And the words we're going to close with this morning. On the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ we live. Amen. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you that we're saved in Christ alone. And it is our prayer, Lord, that as we hear this word, our hearts would be lifted up trusting in Jesus and praising you that you have been so gracious to us, loved us so much that by trusting in Jesus we have everlasting life. In his name we pray. Amen.